Welcome to another quarantine episode of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Now, before I get into any of the science uh, stories tonight, I want to remind you that voting is incredibly important. Yes, there are all sorts of reasons why it can feel like your particular vote isn't really something of all that much import, but there have been races that have been decided by just a few votes. And just think of how hard some people are working to prevent others from being able to exercise their right to vote. And think of how this has gone on since pretty much the beginning of this country. There have been people who have been trying to suppress the votes of others. So if voting doesn't matter, then why are certain factions trying so hard to stop people from doing it? Because it does matter. And so please, please vote. You can vote early by going to your um, local district, usually either the town hall or somewhere else in the district, or you can go on election day, or hopefully most of you signed up for uh, vote by mail. Uh, I've already done my vote by mail and sent it back uh, to my town hall. So please, please do that. Okay, so let's move on to something that I don't really want to have to talk about again, uh, but I feel like it's important because uh, it's both, these are both very misleading stories, and one of them is a, unfortunately, a bit of a homegrown story. So let's talk once again about COVID-19. And so this first story concerns a group of seemingly basically right-wing-backed medical researchers, though they would suggest that they're not actually backed by right-wingers, uh, have published what they're calling the Great Barrington Declaration. Now, it's called this because it was apparently created and signed right here in Massachusetts at the facilities of the American Institute for Economic Research, which is a right-wing think tank that is known for, among other things, climate denialism. And so this is just a a really bad uh, declaration that really needs pushing back against. And in fact, several of the primary scientists involved with the declaration have already had accusations of shoddy at best and perhaps even unethical research practices tied to them in earlier work, which suggested that a less rigorous response to the pandemic was a available idea for being implemented. Now, the declaration suggests that everyone who is not high risk basically go back to their regular lives in order to build up so-called herd immunity rather than continue to maintain social distancing and lockdowns. They suggest a vague, quote unquote, focused protection plan for those who are at high risk, though the category of people that they list as high risk is primarily older senior citizens. 
But of course, they failed to note that many other populations are at great risk, including middle-aged individuals with diabetes and those who are African-American or people of color, even in young populations. So people who are African-American, especially people of color, even in all, basically in all of the age ranges, they have a greater chance of having complications and a bad reaction to getting COVID. And they also fail to note, which is the big, big thing here, is that they fail to note that there is no good evidence to suggest that herd immunity for COVID-19 is even possible or probable. Long-term immunity to COVID-19 has not been proven from those who have recovered. And in fact, there have already been a few instances where people have been found to have been reinfected. And while the second infection wasn't as bad as the first, we don't know that that will hold out for all cases. And so, as you might suspect, pretty much every major medical association has pretty much immediately struck back. Uh, and so a group of 31 scientists published a response letter they called the John Snow Memorandum, which refers to the 19th century physician who is one of the founders of epidemiology, having traced a cholera outbreak to an infected water source. Uh, so if you ever heard of the book, The Ghost Map, that is about John Snow and how he created a map that basically traced where this outbreak was happening in order to figure out that it was centralized on this one particular water pump. He was able to get the handle from the water pump taken off. And then lo and behold, the cholera uh, outbreak dissipated because it really had been centered there. And this was a really groundbreaking thing where he was able to actually trace the source of infection, which is what epidemiology is all about, is both tracing the source of where things are coming from and also to be able to map how it's going to spread in a population. So they write in their memo, in addition to the human cost, this would impact the workforce as a whole and overwhelm the ability of healthcare systems to provide acute and routine care. Furthermore, there is no evidence for lasting protective immunity to SARS-CoV-2 following natural infection and the endemic transmission that would be the consequence of waning immunity would present a risk to vulnerable populations for the indefinite future. Now, the Infectious Disease Society of America, which represents over 12,000 researchers in the field, and the HIV Medical Association released a joint declaration, which says in part, to assert that stepping away from the vigilance needed to control the spread of this novel coronavirus and that abdication of efforts to control a pandemic that has overwhelmed health systems worldwide is a quote-unquote compassionate approach is profoundly misleading. And so, yeah, this is definitely a case where science Scientists are being, well, unfortunately, humans. Uh, humans are very good at both seeing what they want to see and justifying their actions. 
based on those assumptions. The ability to justify one's beliefs is a dangerous thing that science is supposed to help temper. But of course, it's not infallible. And sometimes scientists are absolutely led down the wrong path. I'm 100% sure these researchers really believe in what they're saying. But when you look at it from an outsider perspective and from a more mainstream perspective, you see that the data just does not support their conclusion whatsoever. And another story in the COVID headlines concerns the idea that the the World Health Organization has supposedly flip-flopped on recommending lockdowns. This is extremely easily re- debunked. Dr. David, N- Dr. David Nabarro uh, stated, We in the World Health Organization do not advocate lockdowns as the primary means of control of this virus during an interview with a UK magazine. This was then seized upon by others to say that the WHO has suddenly flip-flopped on that idea. However, this is simply a statement that has been true since the beginning of the outbreak. First off, Nabarro is not an official spokesperson for the WHO, but even if he was, his statement is completely unremarkable. The WHO has claimed from the beginning that the utility of lockdowns would be to at most buy countries time in order to put in place actual public health measures for tracking and containing the outbreak once that first curve had been flattened by those initial lockdowns. Now, of course, the part, the real big problem here is that both of these have been disingenuously flagged by the current administration, which seeks to rewrite history to make their frankly dismal response to this to become somehow magically the correct course that should have always been taken. And so we need to be really careful when we find this kind of revisionist history and this smearing of what the vast majority of people have said all along about this um, epidemic. And so the time for relaxing regulations, for uh, going back to the way that we were before is absolutely not now. In fact, there has actually been a new surge that has been affecting many areas and will continue to remain a threat until a vaccine is discovered. And even when one is developed, it may end up being more like a flu vaccine, which must be adopted every year. Because again, we don't have any evidence yet that immunity can be conferred long term, which makes a herd immunity project all the more dangerous to pursue. Let's hope that certain people who desperately want to hear this message aren't persuaded to give up evidence-based medical suggestions. Okay, so this next story uh, was what I was originally going to talk about, and after having to talk about that, it seems even more relevant. (laughs) So as you might know, if you're a regular listener, one of my peculiar habits is to watch the show Ancient Aliens, especially when the world gets a bit overwhelming. Some people eat ice cream, some people do yoga, some people meditate. I watch Ancient Aliens. 
I find it to be oddly soothing to be able to listen to such peculiar ideas that have no real impact on the world. Occasionally, they'll say something outrageous or display a breathtaking lack of basic knowledge of science, uh, but it's a great way to pretend that the worst things in the world is that simply a bunch of, frankly, mostly white dudes think that our ancient ancestors were both incapable of things like monolithic building and also had apparently no imagination whatsoever and only ever depicted things that they'd actually seen with their own two eyes. That's the one that always gets me the most, um, is the idea that our ancestors had absolutely no imagination. Um, I find that such an interesting and odd suggestion. But anyways, I mostly enjoy it, frankly, because it introduces me to amazing places that I may not have heard of before. And then I can actually go and read about them and how they were created by actual humans using actual human tools and ingenuity. There are few, very few, out of truly out-of-place artifacts that truly can't be explained by reading beyond the first page of a Google search. Now, on that fact, though, they do get one thing slightly correct. There were indeed things that the ancients did that seem mind-blowing to us and can seem, in fact, out of place. But generally, this is because a lot of artifacts have not stood the test of time. Artifacts of ancient civilizations are more akin to fossils. We feel like we have a ton of them, but if you think about how many people have lived and used tools and pots and weapons and all of the other things that you need for everyday life and compare it to the amount of artifacts we've recovered, you'll see that there is still a very large gap. And we also know that ancient places of knowledge have been decimated in the past. So, for instance, the Library at Alexandria, which had basically the sum total of knowledge of the ancients, was burned to the ground. And so all of that understanding of what the ancients actually knew was lost to us. And so, obviously, there are definitely big gaps, but that does not mean that those gaps need to be filled in by anything even vaguely resembling ancient aliens or a antediluvian civilization or anything like that. It's simply the fact that we don't know everything about the actual human beings who lived in the past. And, you know, that's unfortunate. I would like to know more about them because they seem to have been incredible and have done a lot of things that, frankly, we probably couldn't do today because we wouldn't have the imagination and the willpower to do. But why am I bringing all of this up? Well, one of the other big complaints that ancient aliens often has is that science refuses to even contemplate the idea of extraterrestrials. And so they are often derided in the show as being closed-minded and not willing to look at any evidence. Well, two recent stories belie this idea, especially that scientists are ignoring the possibility of current ancient life, or alien life, I should say. So you've almost certainly heard of SETI, 
uh, the search for inter extraterrestrial intelligence. This has been an ongoing project where scientists have attempted to find signs of alien radio transmissions. SETI's last survey by astronomers working with the Murchison Wide Field Array, or the MWA, radio telescope in Western Australia, surveyed over 10 million star systems and failed to find any signs of extraterrestrial life. Previous research there had already surveyed 75 known exoplanets, and at least six more were known in the area studied. The researchers were surveying the Vela constellation, according to a paper published in the, in, in the publications of the Astronomical Society of Australia. Chinoa Tremblay, from Australia's Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization, or CICERO, and Stephen Tingay from the International Center for Radio Astronomy Research, or ICRAR, were looking for low radio frequencies similar to those produced on Earth, between 98 and 128 megahertz. They note that these, quote, narrow band signals are associated with civilizations here on Earth. The MWA is a unique telescope with an extraordinarily wide field of view that allows us to observe millions of stars simultaneously, explained Tremblay in a Curtin University press release. We observed the sky around the constellation of Vela for 17 hours, looking more than 100 times broader and deeper than ever before. With this data set, we found no technosignatures, no sign of intelligent life. After 30 hours of observation, they found that 17 were, quote, free from imaging artifacts likely caused due to the instrument being worked on during the day, while the observations were taken at night. Now, not finding something in this survey is interesting, but it's not diagnostic. Despite the seemingly large amount of surveyed stars, it's actually still a tiny drop in the ocean that is the sky. In fact, Tingay notes that the survey, quote, was the equivalent of trying to find something in the Earth's oceans, but only searching a volume of water equivalent to a large backyard swimming pool. And so another SETI survey completed last year by astronomers with the Breakthrough Listen Project also came up short in a survey that included 1,372 nearby stars. But researchers continue to look, and that's a big thing. Once the square kilometer array in Western Australia comes online, they'll actually be able to scan billions of star systems with 50 times more sensitivity than the MWA. And so they are continuing this work because scientists do want to find signs of alien life if it's out there. They are very interested in knowing whether or not we are alone on the Earth. And so is pretty much everyone else. It's just that the evidence that ancient alien theorists put forth is generally of absolutely terrible quality, to be frank. Um, and we really need to be working scientifically on these things. And in fact, 
here on Earth, there is actually also being work being done to examine scientifically the phenomena of UAPs, or Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. Apparently UFOs are so 2000s. <laughs> Felipe Aralis, a project controller at the European Space Agency's Space Research and Technology Center in the Netherlands, has been spearheading a project he calls the Unidentified Aerospace Phenomena Observations Reporting Scheme. And so he was inspired by the proliferation of publicly available databases of satellite data and other new technologies, which may make studying UAPs easier. Because when it comes right down to it, we need hard evidence. And so working with Aileris is Kevin Knunth, a former scientist with NASA's Ames Research Center, who is now an associate professor of physics at the University of Albany in New York. We are looking into using satellites to monitor the region of ocean south of Catalina Island, where the 2004 Nimitz encounter occurred, Nunth said, referring to UAP sightings reported by pilots and radar operators based aboard that aircraft, the USS Nimitz. The UAPX team, as they call themselves, notes on their website for the project that they plan an expedition to the area in 2021, quote, to provide unassailable scientific evidence that UAP objects are real, UAP objects are findable, and UAP objects are knowable, they write. We are hoping to detect UAPs, determine their characteristics, flight patterns, and any patterns in activity that will allow us to study them more effectively, Knunth told Space.com. In addition to monitoring a region for UAPs, we are also looking into using satellites to obtain independent confirmation of, promise of prominent UAP sightings and to obtain quantifiable information about those UAPs, which is, again, the first step to any kind of serious study of the phenomena. Now, many mainstream scientists simply point to a lack of strenuously verified data concerning such objects, which can be put to the scientific test. You can't scientifically really take a bunch of cell phone videos and camcorder videos from people who have come across things in completely uncontrolled uh, situations and consider that to be gold standard evidence. I know some people say that that's, you know, the problem with science, but unfortunately, it's the realist, it's the reality of science. There's a fundamental problem that we have right now to scientifically study UAP, says Ravi Kapoorupa, a planetary scientist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. We do not have the proper data collection of this phenomena that can be shared among interested scientists to verify claims and filter out truly unexplainable events. There is absolutely no concrete evidence that I know of at that I know of that points to them as being extraterrestrial, he added. But that shouldn't discourage researchers from seriously studying the phenomena. I think people immediately think about aliens when they hear UFOs slash UAPs, and I want scientists to not fall for that, Koparapu said. 
Be strictly agnostic and don't let preconceived ideas cloud judgments. Have an open mind. Consider this as a science problem. If it turns out these have mundane explanations, so be it. Of course, we have a local problem in the sky beyond the possibility of UAPs. And after we take a short break for uh, some PSAs and some show promos, we're going to talk about that. And that problem is space junk. So uh, do stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio, and we will be back in just a few moments to talk about space junk. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in the CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's Subculture Music Program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. 
Okay, we are back. You are still listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And as promised, we are going to talk about space junk. Now, space debris, or space junk, uh, is becoming a bigger and bigger issue around the Earth. And in fact, a new annual report from the European Space Agency shows that while we've begun to be more mindful of what we add to the pile, we're not doing nearly enough. Not only did two large dead satellites barely miss each other earlier this year, but the International Space Station has had to swerve three times this year in order to avoid colliding with space junk. And just yesterday, an old discarded Chinese rocket stage and a defunct Russian military satellite passed within 80 feet of each other, and it was considered a big deal. People were really watching it because they were concerned that the two would collide, creating another shower of space debris. Now, collisions actually aren't even the real problem here, funnily enough. The real problem is leftover energy sources. 32.23% of fragmentation events over the years have been caused by leftover propulsion. The biggest contributor to the current space debris problem is explosions in orbit caused by leftover energy, fuel, and batteries on board spacecraft and rockets, said Holger Krog, head of the ESA's Space Safety Program. Despite measures being in place for years to prevent this, we so see no decline in the number of such events. Trends towards end-of-mission disposal are improving, but at a slow pace. Space debris has been building up since the 60s, obviously, uh, since we started going into space, with both small and large objects, including satellites and all those discarded rocket boosters, uh, some of which obviously have been orbiting for decades. So every time a Russian or an American rocket went into space, uh, even when the space shuttle would go into space, you would see it would have these booster uh, rockets with it that would fall away. Well, most of those, some of them fell away and re-entered the Earth and burned up, but some of them were dislodged after they had already reached orbit. And so mitigating me measures include, well, creating reusable rockets, which we're just starting to do now, uh, designing and building more robust spacecraft that, frankly, don't disintegrate in space, even if they do collide, and releasing stored energy that may cause an explosion. Another idea is to potentially move safe, move objects to a safer orbit. So this would involve either creating a sort of graveyard orbit high above the, that currently used in low Earth space, or bringing them down into the atmosphere to burn up. But that's also problematic because then they can potentially fall on different places. Now you can try and get them, you know, the world is mostly ocean, so it's not that hard to get them to uh, burn up over a body of water where they're not going to damage anything. But still, there's always the potential for uh, damaging uh debris falling to Earth. Now, currently, 
Despite new measures being worked on, there are 12 fragmentation events every year and have been for the past two decades. And the number is rising, not going down. Each fragmentation creates potentially thousands of pieces of small debris in orbit. Because of the orbital velocity of the objects, even the smallest pieces can cause disabling damage to operating satellites. According to the ESA's statistical model, there are over 130 million pieces of human space junk, smaller than a millimeter. They note that as more space, that more spacefaring nations are complying with international guidelines, especially about space debris mitigation. However, with the tr new trend of privately launched swarm satellites, the problem may become worse before it becomes better. The accelerating increase of satellites launched into low Earth orbit is starkly visible in our latest report, said Tim Florer, head of the ESA's Space Debris Office. To continue benefiting from the science, technology, and data that operating in space brings, it is vital that we achieve better compliance with existing space debris mitigation guidelines in spacecraft designed and op in spacecraft design and operations. It cannot be stressed enough that this is essential for the sustainable use of space. And so this is a big problem because we have a lot going on in near Earth orbit. Uh, all of the satellites that give people cable and self-access and uh, that are looking down on us and giving us Google Maps, all the GPS satellites, all of that stuff is basically potentially orbiting in a minefield of debris that could damage it at any time. And again, they note that even if you have a tiny piece of debris, because of the velocity at which it is traveling, it can do serious damage to functioning uh, satellites and functioning uh, orbiters like the International Space Station, which is already having a bad week. <laughs> they uh, lost one of their oxygen uh, producers. They're fine. The one in the American side is working just fine, but the apparently the Russian one was old and busted and hadn't been replaced and now very much needs to be replaced because it just stopped working. Uh, luckily, the nice thing about working in space is that we are smart enough to have redundancies. Um, and even if the one in the American side stopped working, there are actually reserves because, of course, humans can't do a whole lot without oxygen. Um, so they're doing okay. Um I mean, they've actually been dealing with for about a year an oxygen leak somewhere on the ISS, and that has not stopped them from doing anything. Uh, they've continued to look for it, but it hasn't caused any actual issues for them other than some headaches about what's happening and why is this not working properly. So they're okay. Oxygen is fine. But if you were to have something punctured the ESA, I'm sorry, the ISS, that would be a big problem, potentially much more than a slow gas leak. 
of oxygen. So part of what the ESA is doing is talking about, they want to talk about this as a global problem, obviously, but they're doing things themselves. So they have commissioned a project to attempt to collect space junk. And so that should be basically previewing proof of concepts in 2025. So there's a bunch of different ideas for that. Uh, lasers to uh, fry up the smaller pieces, um, all the way up to a satellite that actually goes out there and has a either a magnetic or just a mechanical scoop and scoops things up into it and, you know, kind of clears it like a vacuum cleaner. Um, and so there's all sorts of different ideas out there. We just have to actually start developing them and deploying them. And they're also trying to develop a software solution, which would automate collision avoidance maneuvers. And so that would replace the need for human operators to constantly be keeping track of all of these uh, bits of debris and guiding their spacecraft around the known junk. And they are developing the Space Sustainability Rating to help guide spacefaring countries to see how they are performing against a baseline so that they can then see if they're doing good or not, and hopefully if they're not doing good, to start improving. Now, the worst case scenario is something called the Kessler Syndrome. And so this was predicted by former NASA, NASA astrophysicist Donald Kessler way back in 1978. And this states that if you hit a certain density of space debris, eventually a runaway collision cascade would be created, where one collision would create hundreds of thousands of bits of debris, which would go on to collide with others in a chain reaction that would eventually make near-Earth space unusable. We're not yet at that Kessler syndrome point, but how much closer in time does this bring us up to that point, said space archaeologist Alice Gorman of Flinders University in Australia, referring to the possibility of the two objects impacting yesterday. We'll have a sudden injection of a large amount of debris that was unpredicted, and this means there's a likelihood of other things colliding with those pieces of debris. It just makes the situation a bit more compl complicated. But again, luckily, we dodged another potentially catastrophic impact. We have confirmations that the two um, space debris uh, items passed in the night. Uh, and so that is very good news uh, because we do not want to lose the ability to use near-Earth space anytime soon. Speaking of space junk... We've heard from optical astronomers that Starlink and other satellite swarms, uh, which are being put up by companies like uh, SpaceX, are a problem that will make it harder to do their observations. Now, radio astronomers are sounding the alarm that these satellites will also damage the ability of radio telescopes to observe the skies. Due to be completed in the late 2020s, the 197-dish square kilometer array is being built in an area of South Africa. So this is the South African version. There was also one being built in uh, Australia, but this is the South African one that we're talking about now. Um, is 
it's right now being built in a radio quiet zone. So basically, this is a zone where no electrical, um, where, where there's no, uh, radio signals allowed. Uh, no microwaves, no, uh, cell phones, no nothing. Um, there is actually one in America. I think it's in Ohio, but don't quote me on that. It's either Pennsylvania or Ohio. Somewhere in that area, there is actually one in America, but this one's in South Africa. And, uh, right now they're worried that that golden silence will be shattered from above. So SKA SKA released an analysis of the impact that Starlink and other constellations finding that they will interfere with one of the radio channels that SK, SKA plans to use and will hamper searchers for organic molecules in space, along with molecules, water molecules used as a key marker in cosmology. Now, to their credit, SpaceX is promising to address the concerns, but the astronomers are also wisely seeking actual regulations. The United Nations Office of Outer Space Affairs is considering ways to keep the satellite from polluting the night sky, not only for astronomers, but also for wildlife and the public. Astronomers hope that the International Telecommunications Union, part of the UN, will step in. The radio spectrum is a resource that is being consumed by private companies that typically have no regard for science, said radio, says radio astronomer Michael Garrett, director of the Jodrell Bank Center for Astrophysics in the UK. It's only government intervention that can stop this state of affairs, in my view. Now again, SpaceX has responded to other concerns. They have changed the orientation of satellites as they move up to their final orbit. They have painted them a less reflective color and have fitted visors on them to reduce reflections. However, none of that will help radio astronomers. The band that Starlink is using for delivering internet signals takes up a large chunk of frequencies from 10.7 to 12.7 gigahertz within a range known as band 5B, which is one of seven bands SKA's South African dishes will target. The analysis calculated the impact of 6,400 satellites with both direct signals and leakage called side lobes considered. They calculated the satellite transmissions will lead to a 70% loss in sensitivity in the downlink band. If the numbers of microsatellites become 100,000, become 100,000, the entire band would become unusable. And unfortunately, that's not an outrageous thought, considering how many companies are considering these sorts of constellation satellites. If that were to happen, SKA would lose the ability to detect, to detect molecules such as the simplest amino acid glycine, a component of proteins. If it was detected in a planetary system that was forming, that would be a very interesting piece of information, SKA Director, Philip, Director General Phil Diamond said. This is a new area that SKA is opening up. Now, the band could also potentially detect water molecules in distant gal galaxies, which are used in studying how dark energy is accelerating the expansion of the universe. Now, certain frequencies have been protected for radio astronomy since 1959. However, those are from a time when radio telescopes were only able to use a small band of the spectrum. 
However, of course, modern telescopes can use the entire spectrum. Now, they've managed to coexist with transmitters by seeking out quiet zones or remote areas, but this is not something that can protect them from overhead transmitters. The astronomers want the satellites to be turned off, moved to other bands, or pointed away when flying over a radio observatory. Now, Tony Beasley, director of the U.S. National Radio Astronomy Observatory, has actually already been working with SpaceX to develop a solution, but others don't want to have to rely on businesses, and that's why they are pursuing legislation. So astronomers have pushed for two recommendations to the U.N., requiring future satellites in low Earth orbit to be designed to avoid beaming down when flying over radio telescopes and radio quiet zones, and that they control leakage from their side lobes. Now, these will be discussed next year and go on to the General Assembly at some point for approval. Now, Beasley, for his part, is a bit less concerned. SpaceX is legally transmitting inside one of their bands, and there are going to be impacts for anyone trying to do radio astronomy, he said. These spectrum allocations represent the global, the goals and intent of society we make to enable commerce and to enable defense and all kinds of activities. We have to come to a solution that satisfies all of these to some extent. Of course, I am, uh, I, I would beg to differ a little bit on that in some respects. I think that, um, there is necessarily a place for these sorts of things, but they should be beholden to other more important things like astronomy, like other things that are necessary for our understanding of the universe rather than our ability to um, get cable wherever we want. Now, of course, I'm being facetious about that. I absolutely understand that being able to connect people in rural areas and in places where infrastructure just is not going to work very well, to be able to get them tied to the global network is very important. And I don't want to um, downplay that, but I just think that these satellites are not the best way to do that because they are clearly causing all sorts of problems for people already. And they've barely started being launched into the air. Okay, let's turn now to a spacecraft that is still up and working and should be doing some pretty excellent, uh, excellent maneuvers in the near future. The OSIRIS-REx or Origins Spectral Interpretation, Resource Identification, Security, Regolith Explorer, arrived at the asteroid Bennu back in 2018 and is now, on October 20th, ready to stretch out its arm, dip down to the surface of this near-Earth object, and scoop up some dust and pebbles. The whole operation should take about 10 seconds for that bit of it. And it will happen some, uh, actually more than 200 miles away from the Earth. If successful, it's hoped that the OSIRIS-REx will scoop up around 2 pounds of carbon-rich material that has been hanging out in the solar system since its early days. 
it should bring back this material to the earth in 2023. Now, Bennu hasn't been the most easy object to work with. The object is around a third of a mile wide, and we originally thought it was going to be smooth. But when Bennu, um, but when Osiris Rex got there, it turned out that it's covered in more than 200 large boulders. And every once in a while, the asteroid ejects coin-sized pebbles, most likely propelled either by meteoroid impacts or solar heating. And as we just talked about, those pebble-sized uh, or coin-sized pebbles can actually do damage. Now, because of the boulders, the team had to shrink their target area from approximately 500 to 50 feet. Bennu has not made things easy for us, said Mike Moreau, the mission's deputy project manager at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. It turns out that the boulders had a silver lining, though. Thick veins of carbonate materials. These minerals, which precipitate out of hot water, were found during a close flyby of light-colored boulders near the target site, called Nightingale. The researchers believe the veins would have grown in channels of fluid circulating within Bennu's parent body, a large a planetesimal thought to have formed beyond Jupiter's orbit in the early days of the solar system some 4.56 billion years ago. It was then smashed up in the asteroid belt within the last billion years. That's practically yesterday in geologic time. <laughs> the churning was most likely uh, fueled by radioactive decay in the interior, interior, and the large amount of carbonate, quote, suggests large-scale fluid flow, possibly over the entire parent body, said Hannah Kaplan, a planetary scientist at Goddard who led the work. And so this lines up with the hypothesis that objects like Bennu potentially delivered much of the Earth's water as they bombarded it in the early formation of the solar system. It also suggests that such objects would have been a cauldron for the organic chemistry that generates amino acids and unusual prebiotic compounds found in carbon-rich meteorites. Now, OSIRIS-REx won't be able to sample the carbonate directly from those boulders. It will be sucking up grit and smaller than a penny, uh, but that grit but the grit across the Nightingale area seems to also contain signs of carbonate and other molecules. So while it won't be able to sample it directly from the boulders, hope, the hope is that the area around there will also have that material in there. This gives me a hint that my dream is going to come true. Dante Loretta, the mission's principal investigator and a plant, planetary scientist at the University of Arizona, says... I want to bring back something we've never seen before. And so the Nightingale area was chosen because it had abundant pebbles and seemed to be, well, young, having been exposed recently in geological time, which would leave it fairly free of bombardment from cosmic rays. Now, the area is still tight. The craft is van-sized, and the area is ringed by building-sized boulders, including one referred to as Mount Doom, and the entire process of attempted sampling will last around 
4.5 hours. And uh, very interestingly, it will have to be completely autonomous because currently radio signals take 18 minutes to reach Bennu. So you can't really do anything when everything takes 18 minutes to uh, transmit. Now, once it has maneuvered into place, blasts of nitrogen should push dust and pebbles into the quote-unquote donut-shaped collector. Now, it will actually take several days to figure out whether or not they were successful based on images of the targeted site and sampling head and changes to the spacecraft spin, uh, which would change if they added weight to it. Because, of course, as we all know, basic physics, if you add something to a spacecraft in space, that's going to change the way that it moves. Now, by the end of the month, they'll know whether or not they should attempt a second go at a backup site in January. Whatever happens, though, the spacecraft will leave Bennu next year and return in September 2023, where, if all goes well, it will eject the sample capsule, which should parachute to a landing in the desert of Utah. So that is very exciting. And so uh, hopefully we will be able to actually get some of that material and be able to sample it. I know that's something that has been very uh, widely hoped for in the uh, community and especially obviously those working on OSIRIS-REx have been really wanting this to work out because this is one of the key features of the mission. And so, yeah, that is very exciting. Okay. So we've talked a lot about space tonight. Uh, if you're looking for more space talk this weekend, you can actually register for free and listen in on the International Mars Society Convention through Sunday. So if you Google International Mars Society Convention, you'll be able to sign up. Um, if you can, please do donate because they do uh, obviously rely on donations in large part to fund these things. Um, but yeah, so that is very exciting. And I think that it's a good time to think about the skies. Um, if you haven't yet gone out some night and looked at Mars, you definitely should do that. Um, I did it last weekend. Unfortunately, my binoculars are not as good as I was hoping they might be. So I wasn't able to see all that much other than a red dot. But it's still very cool to be able to actually look and be like, yep, that is Mars right there. Um, we also looked at Jupiter and uh, you could also see Saturn. And so, again, tying back to the beginning with the ancient peoples, I think it's really just a wonderful thing to be able to look at things that our ancient ancestors also looked at and also thought were interesting and neat. Um, we had a bonfire this weekend, actually, on Saturday, and it really kind of made me feel connected to that sort of idea of sitting around a bonfire and looking up into the stars and seeing all of that amazing universe out there and feeling connected to it and also feeling humbled by it. Um, I think that the uh, universe is really um, very cool. Obviously, I mean, 
that's sort of a silly statement, but I think it's a really cool thing to study because there's just so much of it that we don't understand. And so as longtime listeners might know, I am also a big fan of the ocean uh, and wish we explored the oceans more just because I don't think that exploring space in order to leave Earth is as important as preserving the Earth we already have. I think it's a much bigger challenge and we should pour resources into what we have already, blah, blah, blah. But I think that space exploration is obviously an important thing to do, especially using robots and landers and uh, satellites and probes and all of those sorts of things that allow us to learn more about the universe and giants, uh, radio telescopes. I mean, the kinds of telescopes that we have today are just amazing. I mean, a telescope that is a kilometer wide, uh, that is going to be set up. That's just astounding compared to what we started with, with little tiny satellites, barely able to see pretty much anything. And so I think we've made leaps and bounds and obviously we still have leaps and bounds to go. But I think it's important to remember that these sorts of things connect us to our, to each other and to the past and to the future. And it's really important. Okay. Well, that is all the time we have for this week. I will be back next week with more evidence-based radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.